The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Now let's move to, uh, we're going to go to our scripture, and we continue in this summer preaching series through the Old Testament. And each week in this summer series, we've been looking at a key figure in the Old Testament and showing how these people prepare us for Jesus and point to Jesus, how they become a, a sign and a foreshadow of Christ, the Christ who is to come. And it's like watching, uh, doing it like this, like reading the Old Testament and then knowing that Christ has come and knowing the New Testament and how these things are fulfilled in Christ and then going back to the Old Testament. It's like watching a, a, a murder mystery a movie or a, one of those psychological suspense thrillers and watching it a second time. You know how you need to do that? You watch it and you're like, okay, now I know the end. I need to go back and watch it again and just enjoy that. And that's really what we're doing. We're going back to the Old Testament and seeing how all of these things prepare us for what we have already, we've come to know in Christ. And so today we look at a, a really important figure in the Old Testament, and this is the person Jonah. We look at Jonah, and Jonah, uh, Jesus talks about Jonah, and it's brief in Matthew 12, but he, he, he talks about Jonah as, as Jonah being a sign of Jesus. And so that's going to be our starting point. We're actually going to start in the New Testament and read this uh, where Jesus talks about Jonah in Matthew chapter 12. And so you can go to Matthew 12, uh, 38 to 41. I'm going to read this, and then we're, we're going to jump into Jonah in just a, a moment. But Matthew 12, uh, 38 through 41. Then some scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was there was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And so we look at this passage, Jesus talking about Jonah, we, we see what was going on at this time for Jesus. Jesus was at the height of his popularity, the height of his stardom in his ministry. He has been preaching, he has been uh, healing, he's been casting out demons, he has been uh, performing all kinds of miracles and drawing huge crowds. Wherever Jesus went, huge crowds were following him. And he's also at the height of his opposition. This is where the religious leaders hated him so much. They were actually plotting to kill him. And so when Jesus comes to this point where he, he is talking to the crowds and talking to the religious leaders who are asking for a sign, he, he's never more popular at this point than at this point. He's never more in opposition than in this point. And it becomes more and more clear as Jesus becomes more popular and where more opposition is mounting against him, he becomes more clear about what it means to follow him. He draws that line in the sand even more thick and more deep about what it means to be a disciple, to truly follow Jesus, what it means to trust in his message. And there's no neutral ground for Jesus. If you read the gospel stories and the life of Christ and his ministry, you will know that there's no neutral ground. You either in, are in rebellion of Christ or you're trusting in him and your life belongs to him. And that becomes more and more clear as the stories go on. There's two ways to relate to Jesus. You either are rebelling against him or you are trusting in him and you love him. And if the Ninevites could, they would cry out to this first century, these first century Jews, they would cry out to them and say, don't miss this. We were at a time when we were rebelling against God. We were missing the point. We were missing the grace of God. But Jonah came to us and he preached to us and, 
And by that preaching, we repented. Don't miss this. And Jesus says, if they could stand up, they would. They would condemn you and they would say, don't miss this. And so Jesus is calling out a a generation of people who are blind to the love of God. They don't get it. And if they miss it, how, how likely are we to miss it? If these first century Jews and people saw Jesus performing these miracles and healing and casting out demons, and they're still saying, you know, why should we trust you? What do you got? Show us something special. If they are still doing it, if they miss the point of God's love and the power of his grace, we could miss it too. And if Jonah missed it, how likely are we to miss it as well? And so I'm really excited about today because you, really, you came on the right Sunday. Good job. You came on the right Sunday. It's the, it's the one Sunday you came, and you don't have to miss out on it. You don't have to miss the love of God, the grace of God. You get to, to see it. And to help you see it, you should, we should look at Jonah. Because Jesus says if you, to help you see it, you need to look at Jonah. Jesus is saying if you want to see me, then look at Jonah because he's going to talk about me. But I'm better than Jonah. And we don't have to be blind to the love of God. We don't have to be blind to the grace of God and his steadfast love. So let's look at Jonah so that we don't miss God's love, so that we don't miss his grace and what it really means. And we're going to read in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, the last verse in chapter 1, and then we're going to read um, all of chapter 2, which is just 10 verses. Many of you know about this story. It's a familiar Bible story. In Sunday school, Jonah got swallowed by this gigantic sea monster, right? There's so much more. We're going to talk about what this really means, what was going on. So starting in verse 17 in Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is this like super small book. If you're having, don't, you don't have to be ashamed if you go to your beginning and look at your index and look at what the page Jonah's on because you, you'll miss it. Uh, it's really small. But starting here in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. And your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head and the, at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my, up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I want to bring your attention to just this first verse and this last verse of this story that really are like these great bookends to this passage. And looking in just verse 17, so the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And then look at 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited him out. What on earth happens in between? We see this story. God sends a fish, swallows Jonah, and then he spits him out. What is going to happen? What happens in here? And how does he get out? What happens in this process where he is swallowed up and then gets spit out? 
He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And this seems to be like the magic phrase. This is the magic password to get out of the fish. Salvation belongs to the Lord. See, in chapter 1, God calls Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to go to preach to the Ninevites. They're a horrible people. I want you to preach against their sin and their, 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 um, their evil. And Jonah says, uh-uh, and he flees as far away as he can go, 2,500 miles in the opposite direction of where he should go to avoid God. He gets on a boat with a bunch of pagans. God sends a storm. Jonah is thrown overboard. As soon as this happened, God calms the storm, and the people on the boat are saved. And Jonah is cast into the ocean where he is drowning. He sends a fish to swallow up Jonah. And all of this has been to get to a certain point. All of this has happened to get Jonah to a certain point, to understand salvation, to get to this magic understanding that salvation belongs to the Lord, to understand the gospel, really, to understand the grace of God and His steadfast love. So everything that happens between verse 17 and verse 10, we see all of that happens with Jonah. It was meant by God to get him to this place to not miss out on the gospel. All of this to understand. And his prayer reveals what he learns about salvation, what he learns about the grace of God and the love of God, and what it means for us. And this is what he comes to teach us through this passage between these bookends, is that we should confess like we mean it, like he does, that we should change our mind about what we love most, and that we should practice genuine gratitude. That we should confess like we mean it. Remember, Jonah is writing this from, uh, he's writing this in the third person. So he is writing this biography, this autobiography of what has happened in his life. So he's really saying, a giant fish swallowed me, and I was there three days and three nights, and then I prayed to the Lord. How stubborn do you have to be? Three days in, three nights in, and you finally are broken down enough where you cry out to the Lord. It takes him three days to do this, and this is how stubborn he is. And Jonah's in this living nightmare where he learns about his most severe problems. He learns about the true depth of his rebellion against God and his need for God, the true pain of separation. Jonah's describing for us what it feels like to die, what it feels like to drown. This is graphic. It's painful. He is describing in the most painful terms possible what it feels like to actually be dying. I called to God in my affliction. Jonah's not sleeping anymore. If we read a little bit earlier in chapter 1, we see that Jonah's in the belly of the, of the boat, that he's in the bottom layer of the boat, and he is fast asleep, and the storm is, storm is raging on, and he is just snoozing. This is very different Jonah that we find here where he says, I call to God in my affliction. Now his world is upside down. A literal wake-up call God brings to his life to show him the depth of his sin and rebellion. His failure in his heart to listen to God and to, and to uh, heed his commands. And in every verse we see that things just get worse and worse for Jonah. I mean, he uses these words. He goes down and down and down. And he gets further and further going down to the heart of the sea. Out of the belly, he says, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, you cast me deep he says, the deep surrounded me. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me. And it isn't until halfway through his prayer that, G that Jonah says, and he, he brought me up. And so instead of seeing these words down, 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 we see a turn and we see that he says, and then he brought me up. The Lord brought me up. Jonah wasn't only physically at the bottom of the ocean. He was spiritually at the bottom of his life. Cast out from God a result of his own desire 
to not do what God called him to do. And God wanted to get his attention. God wanted to wake him up to see, to show him the depth of his rebellion against God, that it was serious and that he needed to listen. I often wonder, why do we need a story like Jonah? Why did Jonah need this sea monster to swallow him up to really get him to that point? I mean, why should he be swallowed by this big fish? I mean, why does God use dramatic stories like this? Have you ever wondered this? Why does God use these amazing, wonderful, confusing stories to get people's attention? I mean, why not? Couldn't there have been other things sufficient? I mean, why not, like, I don't know, moderate to severe irritable bowel syndrome? Why not like a debilitating like tooth infection? Why not like seasickness in the boat? I mean, this, it, could you see it playing out a little different? I, it's totally reasonable. It seems reasonable. And Jonah fled from God and he boarded a boat to Tarshish and away from the presence of the Lord. And God sent a terrific storm and the boat rocked and rolled and Jonah grew violently ill. And he cried to the Lord in his distress, salvation belongs to the Lord. And God gave him back his appetite. I mean, wouldn't that be reasonable? Like why... Couldn't God use other means? Why does he have to use something so violent? Why does God do this? And it is, he does this for a very specific reason for Jonah. Because it forces Jonah to decide on issues that he's been avoiding in his life. It forces Jonah to not be able to run and to hide from issues that he needs to to decide on about God. He was avoiding... Yielding, for, yielding his life to God, yielding to God's commands and his steadfast love, yielding to God's uh, desi- desire for what grace really is. Jonah was running from that. So I say, well, God needed to get his attention because Jonah was running from the steadfast love of God. Why would anyone run from the steadfast love of God? Why would you run from someone's love? And here's why. Because the steadfast love of God will never leave you alone. When God loves us, he never leaves us alone. It always moves us, and we don't like to move. We like to do what we want and when we want it. We like to stay put. We like to just maintain our life of comfort, of routine. And God moves us. The steadfast love of God is is annoying to sinners because it's always transforming us more and more into the image of God. It's reaching new areas of self-centeredness, new areas of uh, self-absorbed piety. The love of God is always pushing us further, always changing us, always seeking the depth of our heart that is still in rebellion of Him. And we hate that. I hate that. The steadfast love of God insists in controlling our lives, and we don't like anyone to control our lives. Isn't that true? And in chapter 4, Jonah tells us exactly why he fled from God. And this is interesting. If we were to ask, Jonah, why did you do that? Why did you run away from God so fast? And now he's able to admit why he did it. And he says it in chapter 4, verse 1 to 2. He says, here's the answer. I I ran from you, he says, "because, because you're gracious, because you're merciful, because you're slow to anger, because you're abounding in steadfast love. No, Jonah, I didn't ask you what you love about God. I asked you, why did you run from God? He says, yeah, I know, that's why I ran from God. He says, you're going to love these horrible people in Nineveh, these sinful, evil people. You're going to be slow to anger with them. You're going to be abounding in mercy. You're going to love them. And if you love them, I know you're going to change them. And I hate them, and I don't want them to change. I want them to die. 
I want them to die as sinners, and I want them to be cut off from you. And so I want to run from you, because I know that your love changes people. Here we find this paradox of God's steadfast love. This thing, that the paradox is something that seems like an oxymoron, a contradiction, but it's not. The steadfast love of God is the most disturbing thing and the most perfect thing that we could ever know. The love of God is the thing that will change us and is the thing that, we, that, that irritates us the most and it is the thing that we need the most in our life. Nothing will challenge us to not be the same that we are the way we are today. And nothing could quite possibly be the most absolute best thing for us than the steadfast love of God. Nothing pushes us beyond where we are today like the love of God. Nothing annoys us. Nothing irritates us as much. Nothing compels us to change like the love of God. And yet there's nothing as sweet and as perfect and as needy in need of we are as the love of God. This is why God went through all the trouble with Jonah. If we don't believe that God loves us, then we will be very confused by how he acts in our life. Jonah acknowledges, he says, God brought the storm. God sent the winds. God threw me overboard. God sent the fish. And later God commanded the fish to to spit me out. And this, although he was in a living hell, was an act of God's grace. Gracious and steadfast love. Jonah recognized that the sovereignty of God means that there's not only external things and external circumstances that that bring about God's plan, but even our own disobedience and even internal struggles and internal selfishness, God will use to bring about his plans for us. Sin is strong, but God's grace and love is stronger. And in a mysterious way, God is able to never be blamed for our sin, and yet he is able to use our sin to bring about his good plans for our life. This is what God's discipline does to us. It's gracious. See, there's a difference between God disciplining us and God condemning us, and we can often confuse the two. We should never confuse God's discipline for his condemnation. In Romans 8, 1, a famous verse about God's condemnation says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, to be in Christ is to to be the recipient of the fruit of Jesus' righteousness and death and resurrection for us by faith, that you don't need to fear God's wrath for punishment of your sin. But we're not spared from His discipline. As Proverbs 3, verse 12 says, For the Lord disciplines those whom He loves, as a father the son in whom He delights. It was gracious that Jonah was cast into the ocean. It was gracious that Jonah was swallowed by the fish. And now he finally admits it. God will use this large fish to discipline his people to bring about his plans. God will use evil and oppressive governments to discipline his people to bring about his plans. God will use a a disobedient child or a conflict with a spouse to discipline his children to bring about the plans that he has for their life. And what we often think is our prison and our hell is often the hospital that God uses for our sanctification. And Jonah is able to admit this. What he thinks is his living hell, which he acknowledges and confesses. He says, but God, you're doing this for me. You're doing this because you love me. 
You're doing this because you're a gracious and loving God. Even as something is being inside the belly of a sea monster for three days and three nights. And this isn't just silver lining Christianity. You know what that is? It's the kind of perspective that always looks for the bright side of things. Things are horrible, but let's look on the bright side. It's not just silver lining Christianity. It's actually seeing that, that, that in all things, we are aware of God's sovereignty and how He works for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose, even in the worst things imaginable. The first step is truly knowing the love of God is to confess it like you mean it to confess Him, to confess your rebellion, your wrongdoing, to confess the times, not only the bad things. So when we talk about confessing sins, we often think about what are you doing bad that the Bible says you shouldn't do, and we confess those things and we acknowledge those things to be wrong. But often confession looks like trust, uh, confessing the things that we trust in that are good as a means of earning God's love, the things that we do right to earn God's love. And we know the difference between someone who confesses something and, con- and someone who confesses it and means it, right? If you have children, you know what it looks like every day. Tell your sister you're sorry for hit her, hitting her. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. That's a confession. See, God needed to bring Jonah to a place where he was able to confess the sovereignty and love of God and his work in his life and his rebellion of God and actually mean it. Saying, I was dying. I was drowning. I'm ready. I'm ready to acknowledge that I'm sorry, that I was wrong. Something may be happening in your life or not happening in your life because God loves you with an unrelenting love. And if we don't understand the sovereignty in God and His steadfast love, we will misunderstand what happens to us. And so when something happens and crisis crashes into our life and our life is turned upside down and we are in turmoil, we will say, God has forgotten me. God surely doesn't love me. God's grace has abandoned me. Where is God when I need Him most? He loves you enough to keep His heavy hand of discipline on you. Something may be happening or not happening Because God loves us and we're just too stubborn like Jonah to acknowledge it, to confess, to cry out to Him. And then three days I cried out to the Lord in my distress. Okay, God, I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to talk to you. I'm ready to hear what you want to tell me. And things happen very quickly for Jonah when he does that. Do you see? Half of this prayer is this downward spiral and this long time, and he is in anguish. And then as he acknowledges and confesses to God with a genuine confession, like he means it, and then things happen very quickly for Jonah. And it happens very quickly for us when we acknowledge our sin to God and turn to Him and seek to listen to Him. Things happen very quickly. In our life, when we trust Him, when we confess our need, and our failure to trust Him like we should. And he cries to the Lord as a man describing what it's like to drown, and we see a glimpse of hope, and he says, I will one day again, I will look upon your temple, and I will worship you. And we see this transformation starting to happen in the life of Jonah. And this is where Jonah shows us that we must change our mind about what we love most in our life. And look again at at verse 7. He says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. There's this turn in Jonah's situation, and we now see him as a different person, that there's this 
glimmer of hope and he sees hope. That he's, not, he's still in distress, but he sees that a way out. He hopes in God's rescue and salvation. And then in verse 8 he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. You can see this in a couple different ways. Jonah is saying, some people, God, some people, some people are, are, have heart idols and some people just don't know how to respect you the way that they should. And, and so we can see it as Jonah being this, this clueless hypocrite. He's crying out from the belly of the fish and he's saying, you know, God, some people just neglect your love because they're not worshiping you. And it's like, Jonah, you are running from God. Or we can see it in a different way, which I think is more appropriate. We see a contrite Jonah. We see a repentant Jonah. We see a changed Jonah, transformed. He's literally been brought to the bottom of the ocean and he has changed his mind. He has repented of what his true treasure was, of maintaining and controlling his own comfort, his own idea of the love of God, his own idea of how God works in this world and in his life, and he is contrite. This is what I think is going on with Jonah. Essentially, what he is saying is that a person is only able in their life to treasure one thing. They either treasure the love of God or the rebellion of God. And he's changed his mind. He's repented of what his true treasure was. And he said, I chose rebellion. I chose rebellion. Literally, I rebelled against God and ran from him. Physically, I ran from, from God and his presence, but not anymore. This is Jonah's repentance. He's turning from his idols. He's turning from his refusal to love God most. And he's turning to appropriate obedience as a response of repenting and believing in God's love. And when we treasure the love of God, it will, it will flow like a fountain in every area of our life and you will see your entire life change, and you'll see everything in your life as an opportunity to respond to the steadfast love of God in your life. You know what an idol is? I mean, when we think of idolatry in the Bible, it's often uh, depicted as someone you know, fashioning a, an object that they then put in front and they worship this object. And you might think, well, we're not idol worshipers, but really an idol or heart idolatry is really taking anything, anything good and putting it in the wrong place. It is looking at anything in our life and putting it in a place that only God belongs. It's taking good things and putting them where God wants to be. It's ordering your life around your career. You can be a workaholic and worship your work as a, as a means of finding identity and worth and value and position in your life. That's an idol. It could be your children where you revolve your life around your children and the behavior and their outcome. And so the things you say yes to in your life are so that, so that they can be the idea of who you want them to be. Your future goals can be an idol. All of these things and more are, are a greater act of rebellion against God than we might think. And he says those who pay regard to vain idols literally means those who hold on to empty lies, those who believe things that have no intention of of fulfilling their promise, those who trust in things that, that promise only the peace and the life that God can provide. And God was showing Jonah the things that he trusted in would ultimately leave him empty and without him, and it was foolish. And it was going to catch up with him. Uh, James K. Smith uh, wrote this book recently called You Are What You Love, and he says this, Jesus is the teacher who doesn't just trans, uh, inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He's after nothing less than your wants, your loves, 
your longings. His teaching doesn't just touch the calm, cool, collected space of reflection and contemplation. He is a teacher who invades the heated, passionate regions of your heart. God is saying, I want you to love what I love, Jonah. I want you to know my love and be transformed by it, and I want your heart to break for what breaks mine. Jonah, I want your very life. I want you to give me my life, your life. I want you to concentrate your entire life to be used for my glory and my purpose. And anything short of that is rebellion, and it will catch up with you. And Jonah experiences God's love. The very thing that Jonah now experiences from God is, is, is overwhelming and undeserving. Jonah rightly observed this kind of love is something that no sinner has the right to come to expect from God or enjoy from God. But as for Jonah, he says, I'm thankful for it. I'm, I'll always appreciate it, and I'll respond appropriately. That's a right response to God's love in our life. The proper response is, is a life of gratitude, and that's what Jonah gets to. He practices genuine gratitude. See verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And his, and his prayer end, uh, comes to an abrupt end. As soon as he gets to that point, we see him as a changed man. God's brought Jonah through this situation that changed him to see God in the world in a whole new way. He comes to know God better. That God is loving, that He is a saving God. That no sinner could come to expect the love of God, but He has received it, and that's how God acts. He delights in changing hearts of sinners. He comes to know Himself better. The depth of His rebellion and sin, the areas of His heart that were hidden, that He was blind to, His own callousness to God that God needed to wake Him up for to see. He comes to grow in compassion for others. He's thankful, and his gratitude is genuine, not because he feels it, but because he does it. We learn here from Jonah an important definition of what it means to be faithfully grateful for what God has done for us. True gratitude comes from faith, is always directed towards God and not towards ourselves. Let me give you an example, and then I'll explain this. Say someone gives you a car, and the person gives you a car, and you be thankful, and maybe you... you you're thinking, wow, this is so nice that they have done this for me. Maybe they gave this car to me because I'm, a, I'm just a great person. They gave this car to me because I'm, I'm funny. They like being around me. They gave this to me because they, I, I am really, uh, I'm turning into the person that, that I really wanted to be, and this is such a, a generous act. I'm funny. I'm good-looking. I'm just an all-around good person. That's why they did this. So you think, well, that's why they gave it to me. As an act of thanksgiving, I'm just going to be more of that kind of person. I'm going to be more funny. I'm going to be more good all around. I'm going to be more generous to people because maybe that's what attracted that gift in the first place. And so all of this gratitude and thanksgiving for the gift that you've received is, is really geared towards yourself. You're thanking yourself for all that you have done, and you want to be more of that. But true thanks and gratitude is always aimed towards God. Gratitude of Someone that would give you that gift looks differently than just being the better person. It's like if that person ever comes along and asking for a ride, he would give one to them. We don't respond by reading our Bible more to God's act of salvation or giving more financially or even coming to church or all those things. We can do these things, and they're so good. We can keep doing that, thinking that God will love us. If, if God did this for me, then I want to become more of that kind of person that he desires and maybe he'll keep blessing me in this way. 
so I can get more from God. But Jonah consecrates his whole life as an act of gratitude and thanksgiving. He says, a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I'm consecrating, I'm setting apart my entire life as an act of worship and thanks to you. And I will do it. What I have vowed to pay, I will do. I will give, I will sacrifice. And whatever you ask of me, my life is yours. And that's what Jonah does. He says, I will declare that my life is yours. That I will give and sacrifice and do all that is appropriate as an act of gratitude for what you have done. The love of God changes a person, not just in their behavior, but in the heart of, and their affections. It will spill out into all of their life and they will see everything in their life as, a, as an opportunity to use their life as an act of worship to God. God, how can I live as a parent, as a spouse, as a worker, as a, as, a, as a member of God's family, as a citizen of a country, how can I use all of these things as a neighbor in my community, as an act of gratitude to you, to consecrate even that area of my life, to be a demonstration of my thanks for what you have done for me? This is why we gather on, on Sunday, not because we want to be better people. I think that's a fruit of, of what happens, but we don't do that for that that, that, that reason, but we offer our life as a living sacrifice to God and we praise Him for who He is and what He has done. We do it to be reminded of, of all of His love for us and His steadfast love. This is why we gather with others and our friends to grow in our faith, in regular community, entering into the messiness of relationship, confessing our sins to one another, not merely for self-improvement, but to identify as God's knit-together people who love God and love one another. This is why we honor God with the use of our gifts and our talents and our time and our money, even as Jonah says he will do, not to get reward from God, but to submit all of our life as a response of gratitude for who He is and what He has done. God does not work in our life in half measures, and Jonah's glad for this, and we should be too, that God does not stop, stop short of His plans for us. He does not work in half measures. He completes the work that He's begun in us. He pursues us. He does whatever it takes to open our eyes and to get us to see the depth of our need for Him and the depth of His love for us. Have you been struggling spiritually in your life? Have you, have you been turning your back on God? Have you been going through something that has caused you to have apathy or to become apathetic, to become lazy in your walk with the Lord? Are you waiting for a sign from God like these first century Jews were? For him to do something big in your life. Would God, would you, would you do something to get my attention so that I can, that can really help me turn that corner? Are you waiting on God to show you these neon lights in the sky? And Jesus says to us in the most loving way, it will not come. Because it has already come in the person of Jesus Christ. There will be no greater sign than Jonah. Let's close with this sign. Is Jesus talking about the sign? Jesus said that Jonah was a sign for himself. In John 3.16, of course, that verse that many of us know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But Jesus says there's no greater sign that will come to you that Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a whale and, and the son of man will be three nights and days in the belly of the earth. And he says, I'm better than Jonah. 
that through the suffering of one Hebrew sinner, Jonah, would lead to the salvation of countless repentant Ninevites. And through the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus would come the salvation of repentant sinners. Out of suffering will come life. This is the sign and what it means, that out of suffering will come life. Out of death will come life. Out of Jesus' death will come our life for those who repent and trust in Him and respond to that sign with, with, a, with a confession, what we really mean, with a change of mind about what we really love and a gratitude of our life of praise and worship to Him. For Jonah, something in him had to be slain, something had to be broken down. It was his refusal to trust God and to rest in his love. And out of the weakness and suffering of Jonah, that life was brought to this sinful city of Nineveh, and these Ninevites were glad for it and thankful for it. And the Ninevites, if they could, would cry out to Jerusalem and say, don't miss this. He would cry out to Holy Cross and say, don't miss this. Don't miss this sign. That out of the suffering and death of Jesus will come life in your life. And that is it. Don't miss this. Don't miss the depth of your rebellion. Don't miss the depth of his love. Don't run from it, but run to Jesus. See, this is how Jonah points us to Christ and shows us that even something better is here in Jesus. Let's not run from him. Let's run to him. Let's pray.